Well, if you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 18. Last week, if you remember, we looked at the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And as we looked at that genealogy, we said that we were being driven to the fact that he is the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the promised messianic king, the one who would come to save the world, the one who is ultimately the seed of the woman promised by God when man fell into sin. And so as we looked at that genealogy and spoke of that, uh, this morning we pick up at the birth of Jesus Christ. And so look there with me just after his genealogy, we pick up his birth beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray that the Lord would illumine our minds to understand it. Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work among us, that as we receive your word, we would hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. We would hear what Christ, our Lord, has to say to us about Jesus, about himself, that we would hear about his saving work and his redeeming us and restoring us to what was supposed to be, that we would dwell with God and he with us. We pray for those who do not know the Lord who are present, that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe. We pray for those of us who do know the Lord that you would Forgive us our many distractions. Help us to repent and put those away and focus upon Christ and what your word says about him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, maybe I should begin by saying Merry Christmas. We're so glad that you're here in spite of the many articles and protestations that I read that people don't gather On Sunday when it's Christmas Day, clearly that's not true. I want to take a picture and send it to the article writers. That's what I want to do. Here you all are. 
Today we continue to reflect upon the first coming of our Lord Jesus. Um, and children, I want you to hear this because I know particularly for you, Christmas can be a glorious distraction in some ways. I know the Christmas season is filled with lots of fun, filled with gifts, with beautiful decorations, festive music, and family get-togethers. And I don't want you to hear that I begrudge any of that goodness. I love all of it. However, we should not let these good gifts from the Lord keep us from focusing upon the giver. The giver. God has given us all these good gifts. That's true, but supremely, he's given us the gift of his son. So this morning, we're going to focus on God giving us Jesus. The Christ. And as we consider Christ, we want to really consider this morning in two regards. So we're going to consider him in two regards. First, we're going to consider the Christ who saves us from our sins. We'll look at that in chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. And then I'll pick it up in verses 24 through 25 again. But the Christ who saves us from our sins. That's the first thing we'll look at. And second, the second regard, or the way, second way in which we'll regard Christ is that Christ is God with us, that he is God with us. We'll look at that in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Now, I want you to know these two points are intimately tied together. They really shouldn't be separated, but we'll distinguish them. And what I mean by that is, if we're not saved from our sins, we could not dwell with God. Further, I mean that being saved from our sins is not our ultimate end, but dwelling with God is. And so these two things come together. So let's consider the first point. Christ saves us from our sins. Look with me at Matthew 1, 18 through 29. Christ saves us from our sins. And when I use that word, for those of you, if you're a visitor and you're not in the Christian church, we use that word Christ it isn't a reference to his last name. He doesn't go by, you know, the name Mr. Christ. It's a reference to his title or his office as Messiah. Now, with that said, it becomes quite familiar so that he's often referred to as Jesus Christ and not Jesus the Christ. But we have to understand that for the original audience, when they hear Christ, they're hearing the Greek word for Messiah, what he's come to do. So let's look there. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. I want to stop just for a second here. Notice that Mary, Jesus' mother, had been betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal is roughly equivalent to engagement, not exactly the same. Um, their betrothal is different from our engagement in some important regards. When you were betrothed, that person to whom as a female you were betrothed, that man is now actually considered your husband, and you are his bride. He goes away to prepare the home. 
to prepare a place for you. While he's away preparing a place for you, you're constantly readying yourself as the bride for his coming. Right? That's what you're doing. And on the day when he arrives, a day unbeknownst to you, the day that he arrives, that's the wedding day. And then you return with him to the home he's prepared. And then that helps us pick up language when Jesus says, for example, I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my father's house there are many rooms. And I'll return and take you to myself. As the bride of Christ the church, he is the groom going away to prepare the place for us. And then he'll come back and take us home. And we call that day the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that's why we're told to be constantly preparing for his coming. That's why that language comes out the way it does. So Mary is betrothed to Joseph. She has a husband. But they do not yet live together. Their, if you will, their betrothal is not yet marriage in the sense that it has not been consummated. He has not returned for the wedding day to take her back. However, to leave that relationship, they must divorce. They must divorce. What's interesting here is that she's betrothed to Joseph and before they came together, you notice that language? That's talking about their coming together on the marriage day and the consummation, all that follows that. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're betrothed to a woman and you find out that she is pregnant and you weren't the one who did it, what are you probably going to suspect? You are not going to suspect, well, clearly this is a miraculous pregnancy that the Lord has put a baby there. It's probably not your first suspicion. And so we read what Joseph does, and her husband Joseph, being a just man, now I want to pay attention to this language, I want to consider Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, I want to begin by focusing upon Matthew's emphasis on Jesus' righteous dad. And you're going to say, I object, Joseph isn't his dad. I'll explain that to you in a minute. But I want you to hear Matthew's emphasis. Joseph is being emphasized as a just man. A just man. And that justice is actually being demonstrated in mercy. He's righteous. He's a righteous man. And if you will, like our righteous God, he's also a merciful man. And so he is unwilling to put her to shame. Now, if you've been at Sovereign Grace, you know that we talked about the story of Noah. And when Noah sinned, what did his son Ham, who was unrighteous and unjust, do? He put him to open shame. He put him to open shame. He was like the seed of the serpent or like Satan who got Adam and Eve, if you will, to eat the fruit they were forbidden to eat so that he might put them to open shame. But Joseph is not of the seed of the serpent. He's not the kind of man who even in the face of his betrothed, in his mind, sin... Even in the face of that, he does not see that as an opportunity to go out and humiliate her. He's not like Ham. He's not like Satan. He does decide to divorce Mary. 
due to what he believes is her infidelity, but he does not want to humiliate her in her sin. And you understand how difficult that is. When we're sinned against, it is all too easy for us to run around and tell everyone what was done by another. All too easy. Joseph, being just and merciful, does not seek to do that. Now, you might ask how I can say that Joseph is the father of Jesus. The reason I say that is not because he's his father by generation. I'm saying he's his father by adoption. His father by adoption. Look at Matthew 1, 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, and in between this, the angel's going to intercede. An angel's going to intercede. God is going to send the angel to intercede to stop Joseph from divorcing her. But I want you to hear what Joseph does after the dream. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. In other words, he went and took her. So now they're married. Now they're married. But knew her not until she had given birth to a son. You understand what that means. And look at what's, and he called his name Jesus. So you understand Scholars are pretty universally agreed upon the fact that by Jesus taking Mary, this pregnant woman, into his home as his wife, and then him naming him, Jesus, that this is an act of adoption. You might think, well, that seems like a strange act of adoption until you've actually been even to one of our adoption services in the United States. I've been to several for members of the church. You go, you're in the court. The judge pronounces that this child is now an heir with all the rights thereof. And then the judge does what? Announces the new name the parents have given. It's glorious. If you've not watched it, when one of our members adopts again, they will because these people, like, they just want all the children. (laughs) It's great. When one of them does it, go. It's a glorious scene. And this is what you see Joseph doing here. Next, I want to focus on Christ's conception. Look at Matthew verse 120. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This account establishes that Christ is both God and man. He's man from the Virgin Mary. He's a man. And he's God, conceived in the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. It also, however, mirrors Isaac's conception in some important ways. Isaac, the son of Abraham, mirrors his conception in some important ways. Isaac Isaac had a righteous father, Abraham. And Abraham had a barren wife, Sarah. And the Lord brings about a miraculous conception in Sarah. Sarah was elderly and barren when she conceived Isaac. She was barren her whole life. But now she was elderly, we're told in Genesis, beyond the years of childbearing when she conceived Isaac. In the case of Abraham and Sarah, though, the Lord miraculously healed their barrenness. In other words, when the Lord healed Abraham and Sarah's barrenness, 
he healed the effects of the fall upon their natural reproductive capacity. When Mary conceived, the Lord brought about a holy supernatural conception. Jesus was conceived in the womb of a virgin without the use of the natural means of production. So yes, he mirrors Isaac, but it's a far greater miracle. Jesus is conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. This is why we say in the Apostles' Creed throughout church history, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Further, this is why we have a particular line in the Creed of Chalcedon. Listen, begotten before all ages, Jesus was begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days, for us and our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures. This is the mystery of Christ. He is God and man in one person. And he is so that he might save us from our sins. So Jesus has descended from Abraham and David, and he is the Son of God. It's a little too much to take in, to be honest with you, and it's not what I have time. I don't have time to do a whole Christology lesson on this this morning. I couldn't do it in one sermon, even if I wanted to do it in one sermon, unless that sermon lasted maybe multiple days. And even after I was done with that multiple-day sermon, you would say, but I still don't comprehend that, to which I'll say, amen, then you're starting to get it. It's a mystery. You get a hold of it in some way, but you do not ever comprehend it fully. You just stop and say, praise be to God. Jesus has descended from Abraham and David, though, and I don't want to miss that point that's driving through Matthew. Matthew starts with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in the genealogy, he's at labors to tell you he's the son of David, the king, the son of Abraham. And then when you come into chapter 1, when the angel addresses Joseph, the angel addresses him and says what? Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So he mirrors Isaac in his supernatural conception only better. And thus Isaac in his miraculous conception is a type of the coming Christ. And it's a type that points us forward to David. A type of the coming Christ. A picture of him. To see that, look at Matthew one twenty one briefly, and I'll pick up on this with his work. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now let me back up for a moment. At the beginning, I said we fell into sin. We 
rebelled against God. Adam and Eve were created to dwell with God and they rebelled against him. And when they rebelled against him, Eve was deceived. Adam was not. Adam openly rejected the Lord who had been good to him. We understand that rebellion, sinning against someone, is more than just something you participate in, but is a kind of rejection of that person, particularly when we get to something like adultery, which the Bible will compare idolatry to. It'll call it a kind of spiritual adultery. When a man or a woman commits adultery against their spouse, the spouse who was cheated on does not merely think, well, you went and sought pleasure for yourself. They also feel an acute sense of rejection, don't they? They feel an acute sense of rejection. When Adam rebels against God openly, defiantly, so that he can take of the fruit and be like God, Adam is openly rejecting God. And in the midst of that, with this kind of extravagant grace, unexplainable to any of us in the way that God acts, if you will, not the way we would act in the face of that kind of rebellion and sin, that kind of rejection, God speaks a promise to Adam and Eve that he will send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. He will send a savior for them. And we start to look for that savior. And we start to hear that that savior is not only coming from a woman, but that savior is coming through Abraham. Abraham is the father of the nation we call Israel. And that seed will come from Abraham. And Abraham then has a son named Isaac. And we hear about Isaac, we think maybe Isaac's the son, particularly when we get to a scene like Genesis 22, where Abraham takes Isaac on the mountain to offer him at God's command as a sacrifice. And God provides a lamb in the thicket, if you will, or a goat in the thicket, if you guys remember, as a sacrifice. And when that sacrifice is given, God tells Abraham this statement, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. God is your provider. He'll provide the sacrifice. This is the scene. Abraham and Isaac, who's going to be the sacrifice? Abraham, the Lord's going to provide the sacrifice. God does provide the sacrifice. And we hear this language, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. God is going to provide this sacrificial offering. He's going to do it on his mountain. And then we go on to hear that Isaac's offspring will possess the gates of his enemies which is a kind of kingly language. He's going to rule over the nations. And then we hear from Isaac's son, if you will, if you go down from Isaac to Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them is Judah. And then we hear the promise that Judah, Jacob's son, from his line will come the king. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so now we know we're waiting for this king, this one whom God will provide, This seed of the woman, this offspring of Abraham, this one from the tribe of Judah, the Lord will provide a sacrifice, 
The Lord will provide this king. He will provide this savior in his grace. And the story continues until Israel is a nation and they're given a king named David. And in King David, we hear that God will provide someone who will sit on his throne forever. Forever. Who will sit on his throne forever. And he will put all God's enemies, if you will, this king, will put all God's enemies under his feet, and he will save God's people. And then you start to hear reflections on David even after his death, that this Davidic king, this greater son of David is coming, that he's going to save us from our sins. Jason read from that passage this morning in Isaiah 53. And so you start pulling all these threads together to the son of Abraham, the son of David, Jesus the Christ, who comes to do what? To save his people from their sins. And who provides this one? God does. Miraculously, supernaturally, in the womb of a virgin. He provides this one. And why did he come? To save us from our sins. To put our enemies under his feet. Ultimately, the enemies of Satan, sin, and death. Listen, this is why he came. He did not ultimately come. Notice that phrase. You shall call his name Jesus, verse 21, for he will save his people from their sins. That's just what his name means. Joshua is actually the name, and it means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. He'll save his people from their sins. He did not ultimately come to save us from bad government or oppression by tyrants or dysfunctional marriages and families or poor health or poverty or racism. Ultimately, he came to save us from our sins. In other words, your greatest problem isn't those people and those circumstances out there. Your greatest problem is you and your sins. You cannot, listen, you cannot avoid you. Merry Christmas. (laughs) You're your problem and you can't avoid you. You cannot be done with you. You cannot move away from you. Your sinful discontentment and the misery of your sin cannot be solved by a change in temporal circumstances. Here's your problem. Leaving a job, leaving a marriage, leaving a church, leaving a state, leaving a country will not leave you behind. Because wherever you go, there you are. What you ultimately need is salvation from your sins. God's wrath justly bears down upon you because of the guilt of sin. And your life is the mess it is in many ways due to the corruption of sin. And Jesus has come to forgive you for your sins. Some contemporary scholars tend to argue that the good news is that the king has come to deal with his enemies and establish his kingdom. They think evangelicals have overemphasized sin and guilt and grace and And really, they've overemphasized because it's just really a Western notion. One wonders if those same scholars have read the book of Leviticus with the guilt offerings and atoning sacrifices, etc. Or this verse, that Jesus came to forgive you for your sins. 
Listen, it isn't good news that the king has come and that he's going to destroy all his enemies if you're one of his enemies. There's no good news there. That's not good news. It's only good news if you're his friend. He is the king who triumphs over our sin, over Satan, over death. But if he is not your savior, then your present relation to the king is not good news. You need him to bring you forgiveness of sins by his sin atoning work on the cross. And you need him to subdue Satan, sin, and death in his death, resurrection, ascension, and current reign. You need him to do that. And the good news is that he's done all that for everyone who believes. So here's the question. Do you trust in him? Do you trust in him? Have you sought forgiveness of your sins? Not, have you sought, hey, I'm going to come to the Lord so he can fix my spouse, my children, my coworkers, my boss, and my governor. You all know you're thinking it. I understand. But I'm going to come to Christ because I need forgiveness of sins. I need to be saved. Do you trust him? Now, I want to tie this to our second point. Christ is not only the one who saves us from our sins. Christ is God with us. He's God with us. Now, I've already been hitting on this to some degree, but I want to look at it a little bit more closely. Look at verse 22 of Matthew 1. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This teaching that Jesus is God with us actually is a bracket around the Gospel of Matthew. Many of you have heard me use the word inclusio before, kind of literary device. It's a kind of bracketing around a section of text. And so you'll hear a repeated phrase. So the Gospel of Matthew begins with this. He will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the Gospel of Matthew ends with what? And I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is God with us. Matthew is at pains to demonstrate that. Please hear that, Sovereign Grace. God with us is the fundamental promise of the Bible in a nutshell. You want to sum it up? What is the promise of all of Scripture? God with us. We were created, as I said, to dwell with God. Adam and Eve dwelt with him. We were created as his people, to dwell in his blessed presence. That is our great blessing, to dwell in the presence of God. But that was lost due to rebellion and sin. Adam and Eve were kicked out of God's dwelling place. And in the face of our sinful rebellion, God covenanted to send the seed of the woman who would conquer Satan's sin and death. And I already asked you, 
consider the extravagant grace of that scene. Adam knowingly rejected the Lord. The Lord who had only been good to him. He knowingly rejected the Lord who had only been good to him. And the Lord, in the face of that, graciously pursued saving him. Graciously pursued saving him. You, with your sin, have not only violated God's law, but in rebelling against God's law, you have openly rejected the lawgiver. You've rejected him. A God who created you, which was kind. A God who carries you through life, gives you breath and makes your heart beat, provides you food, gives you a family, all kindness. And you sinned against him. You rejected him. And he pursues saving you. Think about that. What's his response to your rejection? I'm going to promise to save you. You can't dwell in my presence as that kind of rebel, as that kind of rejecter of God. So I'm going to send my son to save you from your sins so that you can dwell with me once again. That's just sheer grace, mercy, kindness. The Lord promised to save his wayward and adulterous people. And this before any of us had done anything good. This right in the face of Adam's rebellion and rejection of him. Adam didn't do anything to merit God making a covenant promise to send a savior. Adam just openly rebelled and rejected him. And you didn't do anything to cause God, to provoke God to want to save you. Just grace. It's just grace. God would send the Savior and he would bring us back to dwelling with him. In him, when I say that, that God with us is a central promise of all the Bible. In him, the seed of the woman, God would be our God And we would be his people in the seed of the woman, in the offspring of Abraham. God would be our God and we would be his people. That is what uh, many call the Emmanuel principle. The God with us principle that runs through every biblical covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people is the substance of every biblical covenant. God dwelling with us and us with him is what was lost and it is what Christ restores In himself. Listen to the text that Christ is fulfilling. In God's covenant with Abraham, God said this, Genesis 17, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Now here it is, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. In God's covenant with Israel at Sinai, listen to what God said. Leviticus 26, 11, I will make my dwelling among you 
and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. We were kicked out of his dwelling place, and he promised to send the seed of the woman who would in himself restore us to dwelling with God. And he promised in Abraham's covenant that he'll be our God, we'll be his people. He promised in the covenant with Moses, I will be your God, you'll be my people. In God's covenant with David, God said of David's son who would sit on the throne forever to shepherd his people, 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And David rightly replies this way, you establish for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. Abraham's covenant, Moses' covenant, David's covenant. Now the new covenant promise. Listen to how Ezekiel describes the new covenant. He calls it the covenant of peace. Jeremiah calls it the new covenant. Same covenant. Listen to what he says. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. Davidic covenant. The new covenant promise is enfolding the Davidic covenant. They shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Mosaic covenant. The new covenant is now enfolding that. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob. Abrahamic covenant. Where your fathers lived. They and their children. And their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David my servant shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. That's the new covenant in which all of that is being kept. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. New covenant. What is it? I will be your God. You'll be my people. Just as was promised in David, in Moses, and in Abraham. Now listen to how Paul speaks about the New Testament church. You guys have heard this text a bunch of times because you've heard the don't be unequally yoked to unbelievers. And we tend to stop right there and don't read on. Listen to what it says, what Paul says. Here's his argument. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's in the new covenant that we live in right now. Finally, listen to the consummation of all things in Revelation 21.3. John talks about the return of Christ and the new heavens and new earth, and he says this. John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Listen, folks, all I'm trying to do is show you this Emmanuel principle, God with us, is the central promise of every covenant. It's what the whole Bible's about. If you haven't read the Bible before, if you aren't familiar with the Bible, and you wonder, what is this whole book about? Jesus being God with us. We lost the right to dwell with God. Now in the light of that, look at Matthew 1.23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel.
Jesus is God with us. What I'm trying to get you to see is Jesus is what is being offered in every biblical covenant. And the new covenant is the redemptive, we call it the redemptive historical fulfillment of all that. He is the yes to all the promises of God. He has always been the substance of them all. He is the Davidic shepherd king who sits on the eternal throne as promised in the covenant with David. He is the firstborn son of God, the true Israel, who kept the whole law with a whole heart as required in the Mosaic covenant. He is the offspring of Abraham who blesses the nations, who delivers a fruitful and multiplying people that fills the earth with the glory of God, who brings us into the true, eternal, promised land so that we might live there at peace with God. He is the son of Abraham, the son of David, born of woman, born under the law, the second Adam. He is the true prophet and true priest and true king. He's the one of whom John the Baptist cried, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the one who has the spirit without measure. He is the new creation, the true tabernacle. He's the resurrection and the life, the seed of the woman who crushed the serpent's head. He is our righteousness, our sanctification, and our wisdom, and he is our eternal reward. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The whole Bible finds its yes in Jesus. And it is in him that we read that God has condescended to draw near to us. The purpose for which we were created was to dwell with God. That's what we lost. That's what Jesus delivers. Forgiveness of sins is glorious. But it is not the great end of our redemption. The great end of our redemption is that we would dwell with God. The great end of our redemption is that we would commune with him. Out of his pure benevolence, goodness, and love, he created us to dwell with him for our good. He condescended to dwell among us, his creatures, for our benefit And we sinned, we cast that away, and then came his grace. He covenanted to save us in Christ. He covenanted to forgive our sins by giving his own son to stand condemned in our place. And he did that so that we would enjoy the great privilege of communing with him. That's why, you know, when we're redeemed in Christ, regenerated by the Spirit or born again by the Holy Spirit, we seem to be said in Scripture as crying out in some way. Have you guys ever noticed that? It isn't like, well, they came to Christ, they were thankful for the forgiveness of sins, and they went about their merry lives. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What the response to knowing Christ is? Prayer. Communion with God. We're saved 
to the incredible privilege of intimate prayer and communion with the Lord. Prayer and communion with your God is your God-given, heaven-sent, blood-bought privilege. May we desire to glory in that privilege every moment of every day. Believers, I thank God that you're here this morning because by gathering here for worship, assuming you came for this purpose, to gather here to worship is the kind of response that people who understand salvation would give. We just want to gather where God is with his people and hear him speak and pray and commune with him because we understand that what Christmas is is the fulfillment of all the hopes of the Old Testament in God giving his son, Emmanuel, God with him. And with him we get forgiveness of sins and communion with God. And that is our great privilege. May we find joy in it. Let me pray. Father, we ask that this morning we would trust in Christ. We would give thanks for him. We would know the great privilege of prayer, of hearing your word, of gathering with your people to worship. We would know that great privilege, that it is ours in Christ. That Christ is not only our Savior, but our reward. We pray that we would worship him, that even as we return to our family and friends and festivities, that every good gift we receive, we would know comes from you. And it's just a small picture of the greatest goodness we know, which is Jesus Christ himself. The gift of him to us, your church. And we pray that we would think often of him and be grateful and be filled with joy that he is ours and we are his and we will be with him forever. In Jesus' name, amen.